chapter 1. It's a good place to go because that's where we're learning from this morning. So I guess that's an understatement and an obvious fact of the day. I'm, I'm just, just on point today. <laughs> Pointing to the right book, the right chapter. Uh, we are going to, in a moment, start, uh, start marching through the rest of the first chapter of Acts. But let me point out a couple things that we hope is a help to you. I've already mentioned this booklet. Uh, this is a study guide that we developed uh, over the summer. We want it to be useful uh, to you. We want to pour ourselves out uh, for the ministry of prayer and the word. And this is one aspect that word ministry can go forward, especially for the people that God's given us in the local church. So this is designed with you in mind. It's free for you. Just, just take it and go, and we hope it's useful to you. If you didn't get one last week, there should be some at the back when you go out. You could grab them at the welcome table uh, at, the, at the back of the church, sort of right outside. So that's one thing. Uh, we'd love feedback. Hopefully this is a help to you as you study. The other thing is on your car, on your seat, or somewhere around you. I don't know if we had enough, but we can make some more for next week. But there's these little cards that just say one life. You know, John, when he was uh, on the Isle of... Patmos in exile, and he was given this amazing vision, and he set out to write a book, The Apocalypsis, right, which is a much better name for Revelation. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not in marketing, not in PR, but when he wrote Apocalypsis, there's these moments of grand vision where John stands before the throne of the living God, and he looks out, and I don't know if he counted, I don't know if he conversed polylingually. That's not even a word, is it? Polylingual? Multilingual? I don't know if he conversed with everyone, but there's a moment in Revelation, right, where John looks out and he says that standing before the throne, purchased by the blood of the Lamb, are people from every tribe, nation, language, tongue. And they're all standing before the throne. Sometimes when we see pictures like that and we read in Scripture, we just think, this work, this work of being faithful to the gospel is so vast and so wide. I don't know Portuguese. I've never been to these far-off places. I don't know what to do. And this little card right here, as well as the sections at the end of each chapter in this booklet, are our attempt to help us streamline and focus down what it means to be faithful as a Christian witness. And so here's what we want to do. All of your praying... All of your hospitality, your generosity, your kindness, your speaking forth the truth of your hope in Christ. We're just asking you to pray that over the next number of months, nine, ten months, that God directs you to someone that you can be very intentional with. Someone that you could say, you know what, no, this person, if I do anything over the next nine or ten months, I'm going to love this person well. I'm going to pray for them consistently so that God might open a door for me to have conversations with them. So it might mean that you serve their needs in a better way. It might mean that you love them unconditionally. It might mean that you are generous with them in a way that some, maybe you're not with the rest of the people that you come in contact with. And it might be that God opens a door so that sort of vague spiritual conversations, it's kind of like, how was church and what's your background and do you like spiritual things, could be turned more intentionally and specifically to who is Jesus Christ and what has he done. This is just a reminder. It's a minor little thing. You take this card, you put a first name on it, and you put it wherever it's helpful for you. I don't know what that means. That might be in your, in your phone, your phone case. That might be on, your, not on your wrist probably. Uh, don't tape it there. Um, on your, your car steering wheel, dash, those are good words. Maybe in your mirror, in your bathroom, right? Maybe on your kitchen refrigerator at home. But something to help you to say, God, I'm putting... I'm putting this life down. I want to pray consistently. I want to reach out and be intentional. This is a help to you. 
then we hope, it, we hope that it assists you to at least remember and keep going. So that's a simple thing. That was a massive introduction. Have you ever heard a longer, more detailed, passionate introduction for a smaller piece of paper in your entire life? I don't, I don't, probably not, right? So uh, this small piece of paper represents a huge heart for what we want to see happening over the next 10 months. There you go. Acts chapter 1 is where we're at. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 all the way through to the end of the chapter, and I can't wait to dive in. We are in a sermon series that we started last week. Let's begin reading. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, Brother, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. God, would you give light? Open our eyes to see just a bit more clearly. Would you send your spirit to teach us all things, to bring to our remembrance all things? Holy Spirit, would you come and take from Jesus and give to us? God, we invite the word of God to be what it is, to be living and active, to transform us, to cut us, to separate joint and marrow. We come willingly under the word of God, not above, not alongside, We come under this word, God, make us more acquainted, more in love, more astounded by the fact that you've communicated, you've condescended to speak. God, help us to see truth in your word today. And as we study your word, make us more and more acquainted, more devoted, more in love with Jesus, the living word made flesh. We pray all this in his name. Amen. This is really an amazing moment in the record of the early church. I think if I was a filmmaker, which I'm not, I did make a movie one time uh, when I was 
a youth pastor, but it was terrible. Uh, it was really bad. And uh, making movies is hard, but I, I think I, I can imagine what it would be like. And right here, at this turning point between verse 11 and 12, I can imagine that whoever's directing or producing this film would have a heyday. This would be a moment of very, very thoughtful, very, very impassioned filmmaking, right? All the way up to verse 11, Jesus ascending up into the clouds. The guy who's running the show might have come and been like, okay, we have this amount, this is the special effects budget that we have for the film, and we want like 90% of it to go to this. Like, I don't want, I don't want Monty Python effects here, right? Like, I want, I want the good stuff. When Jesus ascends, I don't want to see the, I don't want to see the rope from his back, right? This is not like a community theater production of Peter Pan. We don't want, we don't want that kind of flying. I want all the special effects to go into it. I want the perfect clouds that you can just reach out and touch them. Jesus should be wearing like a cool, a cool, the best the best robe you can imagine for flying, right? Just like get him, get him that robe, pristine. And then not just the special effects for this moment. We want the perfect scene, a mountainside, so that when he speaks, it's cavernous, and loud, and powerful. You will be my witnesses. Can you see it? Building up the story of Jesus. And then the producer says, yeah, the special effects are good, and the clouds are there, and the, the spot's perfect. You know what we need? We need that guy who did like the Star Wars music. We need... We need the perfect orchestra so that after Jesus booms out in Judea and all the ends of the earth, silence and then slow building. Right? And then it just, it, just, it just builds and Jesus begins to lift and he goes into the sky, right? That's what we want. This is, this is it. That's what we want. And Jesus begins to go away. There's cool camera angles like behind the shoulder and ear of Peter and he's staring up. Right? And then finally, Jesus is just gone and everything turns to white. The culmination of the music is loud. And then I wonder about the next scene. Verse 12 is the next scene. Right? It fades to white and Jesus is gone. But the movie doesn't end. It goes to black. And I I can imagine there being this abrupt finish. So the music is loud and it's gone. And it's all white and Jesus is gone. And then there's just this black that comes and everything goes quiet. That was supposed to be a music. <laughs> I'll work on my sound effects. I'm not, I'm not quite that guy in the old like police movies. I'm not quite that guy. So there's, it fades to black and like all the disciples are looking around, right? They've just been, they've just been witness to the most amazing thing ever. Jesus is, this resurrected Jesus is gone. They've just been reprimanded, scolded. I think scolded is a good word. Scolded, apparently, by angels. It's not, that's not a good day, right? How was your day? Did you have a green day at school, kids? Scolded by an angel, nothing big, right? Scolded by an angel, stop being slack-jawed and staring up to heaven. You have something to do, right? And can you imagine this moment? Imagine the disciples, like, gathering their things and and looking at each other and like turning over and looking at the valley and seeing Jerusalem. <laughs> Just being like, I guess, I guess we got to walk. I, I, he, said to go and, he said to go and walk down there and to wait. I can think of like the conversations maybe that were taking place. You know, like James and John are just walking along. And finally after like, you know, five or six minutes, James gets the courage to speak really profoundly and say something like, huh? <laughs> like, did you see the thing in the clouds and the men? And then he was like, did that happen? And I want you to just think about the disciples 
turning and walking back to Jerusalem, what is the mindset of this group, this ragtag bunch of people who just a few short weeks earlier had all scattered and left Jesus? The best of the bunch whom had cursed Jesus, not once, not twice, thrice. I, always, I want to work that word in as much as I can. Three times. That's the group we're dealing with. Can you see how tenuous this is? Can you see how crazy this must seem to them? And yet they go on obediently. Something is moving them. Something is making them walk to Jerusalem obediently to wait. I think it would be a safe thing to say, probably the safest thing in the world, to say that what they've been on, could we, could we phrase it like this, has been an emotional roller coaster. Is that okay? Can we say that? Best roller coaster you've ever been on? Excalibur for me. It's a Valley Fair, Shakopee, Minnesota. You should go sometime. It's great. But the disciples have been on a roller coaster. You know that, right? Can you imagine the last six weeks? Jesus comes into Jerusalem triumphantly. He's riding on a donkey. We sang this morning, Hosanna, Hosanna. You are the God who saved. We just sang that, right? And they're walking in, and the disciples are just like, they're like this. They're saying, yes, Jesus is finally coming in. He's about to take this place by storm. And they can imagine all the cush jobs they're going to get. They're just walking in. They've been arguing forever, asking him who's going to be first in your kingdom when you bring it in. They're walking in, and the guy's thinking like, do I want to be the ambassador to Italy or Paris? Where, where's, where am I going to be in the hierarchy of things, right? So they're probably excited. Jesus comes in triumphantly. And where does that triumphant donkey ride lead? Straight to betrayal. The section of Matthew 26 that I read for the Lord's Supper. Jesus can't even enact the greatest moment of his self-giving without betrayal, just being stinky all over. It just reeks of betrayal and treachery. Jesus says, like, one of you will betray me. Probably thinking, what? How is this happening? Betrayal leads to arrest. No more donkey riding Hosanna, but arrest. Arrest leads straight to a trial that they must think is unthinkable. Like the, the, mur- the murderer guy is gone, and then he's going to, what? And they all scatter. And they, they hear the news. Jesus is dead. Dead. Executed. Over. So the morning sets in. Probably thinking to themselves, like, man, it was just, it was just last week. It was just last week. We, we were like his posse. We, we were his entourage coming into the city, Dodging, dodging, like, man, those have a name. Dodging palm trees, right? It was just a week ago. Now they're ugly crying and trying to hold it together to fish, right? Mourning, mourning the death of Jesus. And of course, that doesn't last very long. Sunday morning comes, the tomb is empty. Resurrection, what? And then Jesus, for the next number of weeks, appears to 500 of them at one time and walks with some of them along and teaches them from Scripture and says, feel my hands, I'm, I'm real, I'm physical. And then at the end of all of that, is that, is that, has that been a big couple weeks? At the end of all of that, they watch their leader, the one who has gone through all this, give this command and then just rise up and be gone. This is a moment of chaos. Them, them turning, so these three little words, then they returned to Jerusalem. This is an amazingly tenuous moment, turning and looking and saying, what now? And the thing that we're going to learn from these disciples over the rest of this chapter, the thing that we're going to learn is what do they do while they're waiting? Because that's what Jesus tells them to do, right? 
In the midst of chaos and confusion and calamity and tragedy, isn't that the thing you love to do the most? You're just really confused. You don't know anything about your future. You're not sure where to go. And you just think to yourself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait quietly and patiently, just like I was designed. Right? I'm so glad that I've been cultivating the fruit of the spirit of patience and joy in my life all these years. It's exactly for this moment. Nobody waits like me. Right? That's what you want to do, right, when you're confused and you have things to do. No, you probably think to yourselves, like, we need to get busy. If we walk in Jerusalem, like, those people who killed Jesus, they're still down there. There's political turmoil. I don't know what this power is that we're supposed to receive, but we should be doing something. Shouldn't we be doing something? And yet Jesus tells them, like, go back there and wait. Go back there and wait. And what we're going to learn from the disciples in this next little section is what does waiting look like? The promise comes in verse 8. But Acts doesn't introduce the fulfillment of the promise until Acts chapter 2. This is a period of waiting, and we can learn from them. Pastor Dave came up with a nice little phrase this week that I really, really liked. He called it promise-sitting. Promise-sitting. What happens when we're promise-sitting? They have a promise, and they're just kind of sitting, kind of waiting on it. And I'm going to say that a couple of things mark their waiting, a couple of things at a minimum. First, them waiting around and sitting on the promise meant trusting that God had a plan. It meant trusting that God had a plan. In other words, there was a theological question behind their waiting. It's difficult to wait with bad theology. It really is. You know that? It's difficult to wait with bad theology. But behind their waiting, they understood that God was faithful and true and right and just, and what he planned was going to come to pass. So promise-sitting for them meant trusting that God was in control. There was a trust behind their waiting. But I want you to note as well that waiting for them did not mean passivity. It not, did not mean like, Jesus said to wait, so I'm finally going to finish my Netflix binge-a-thon. <laughs> right? Like, I have, I have divine authority to like, just plow into a whole thing of Ben and Jerry's and finally finish Friday Night Lights. Like, I can't wait. Their waiting was not passive. Oftentimes, we get in the habit of thinking that waiting on God, trusting on God. Have you ever been in a moment of calamity and and chaos and confusion? You don't know where to go, and people say very, very spiritual-sounding things like, you just got to wait on the Lord, brother. Just just wait on the Lord, right? And you think, like, what does that mean? I, I never went to monk practice. Like, I can't even get my feet in that thing, right? Like, I don't even know how to do that. The disciples show us that waiting does not mean passivity. It does not mean to being passive. So, I'm going to start with that first point. Promise sitting meant trusting that God was in control. And I want to point out to you that this entire waiting process was marked by the sovereignty of God. The entire waiting process was marked by the sovereignty of God. They had nowhere else to turn. Things had been so insane, so crazy, that for them to settle in their hearts on the fact that maybe all of this was chaos and there was no plan would have been absolute mission suicide. The only thing that moved one foot in front of the other on the walk down to Jerusalem was God is in control. God has promised and God is faithful to his promises. Patience for the Christian, patience is another fancy word for understanding who God is. Namely, that he is sovereign, right? Patience is the ability to rest securely in the sovereignty of God. That's what true patience is. Otherwise, patience is simply 
very still, lazy worry, right? Any of you guys wait around and really it's just lazy worrying? Anybody? Does that mark your patience? True patience, true waiting is marked overall by a secure understanding and a belief about who God is. When God promises, does he fulfill the promise? That's the question that they're asking. And I want you to note how many of the activities, just in these short 15 verses, show this particular thing. One, they obeyed. They obeyed. The fact that they obeyed and they went to Jerusalem and they waited is a show of their trust in the plan of God. Obedience costs us something sometimes. And at the moment that obedience costs you something, you are saying to yourself, God, I trust that your plan is better, your instruction is best, because right now this feels terrible and I see the loss, but I trust that I'm going to see the promise. Obedience shows that they trusted that God was sovereign. He promised a spirit and so a spirit would come. He promised the spirit of God, the spirit of God would come. They go down and they wait. Second, they devoted themselves to prayer. We're going to talk about prayer in a moment as something that they did and not be passive, but they devoted themselves to prayer. Have you ever thought about the simple, simple act, how simple the act of prayer is? Do you know that if you did not believe that God could actually act, you would not pray? Why pray to someone who's, not, who's powerless? You'd just leave him alone. I'm grateful that we don't have a God who when we come to him with our problems, we say like, he, he just says like, you know, look, I'll do my best. I just, I don't know. I, here's the deal. Like, uh, I got some time next Thursday, but I don't really, I, I don't know. I know a guy, I, maybe that guy. Okay, I know a guy who knows a guy. I'll do my best. Okay, right? If you have a problem and you bring your problem to somebody and they say that, you leave them alone. But what you believe about God's sovereignty, his plan, can he, can he speak into life and make things happen? Is he good? Is he right? Does he move in ways that are immutable, cannot be changed? Is his plan set forth in motion? Like the song that we sang, Hast thou not seen how all thy longings have, I like it old school, like been, been granted in what he ordaineth? That's the question behind prayer. Have all of your longings been granted in what God ordains? If yes, then you will go to him day after day after day in prayer. The drive, the fuel of prayer for them was the fact that God could move. He's mighty to save. He's powerful. His plan can be enacted. It wasn't just obedience. It wasn't just prayer that showed sovereignty. It's the fact that they look up Scripture. Peter stands and says, Brothers, the Scripture must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. If God has spoken, then it will come to pass. Peter is standing on the infallible, eternal word of God. Everything that happened to them this whole time, Every twist and turn of that roller coaster that I just described, even the stomach churning parts, even the going upside down parts, even the I hope this contraption stays attached to me parts, not a surprise to God. That's what Peter says, isn't it? Isn't that what Peter says? Not a surprise to God. God has spoken, and He is sovereign. He has ordained, therefore, it will come to pass. And he not only spoke it, but he spoke it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years previously through David. They believe in God's sovereignty through the word of God. So obedience and prayer and studying the word of God. Later, they're trying to figure out who to replace Judas with, right? Note how they pray in verse 24. 
This is beautiful praying. I wonder if this is the kind of confident praying that they were marked by. Verse 14 says they were devoting themselves to praying. And I love to think it was praying like this. Lord, you know the hearts of these men. Show which one of these two you have chosen. Despite the fact that Jesus is gone, despite the fact that they're waiting, despite the fact that they don't know what the next step is going to be, they're praying and looking to God, saying, God, you are in control. We're about to make a decision here. We need to move forward. There's something that's going on. But they're praying in a way that says, God, we're not mistaken about this. Like, we get it. You're the boss. You're the foreman. You have this ordained. Lord, you know. Lord, you know. Lord, you know. That's a confident first three words of a prayer. I would commend it to you. You troubled? Are you mourning? Are you grieving? You know, right now, you don't know what your, your major is going to be, right? It's one of the last five, <laughs> right? One of the five that I've studied. I think it's one of the, I'm not really sure. You know, you don't know who you're going to marry. You don't know if you're going to marry. You don't know. You don't know about kids, what you're going to name them, what they're going to grow up to be. You don't know about a million different things. And let me tell you, beautiful theology is put in practice when you bow your head. You start with these words, Lord, you know. Lord, you know. That says something about who we believe God is. God is not looking at the future, fretting and wondering and hoping he can like spin everything into order. He's looking at the future and we can pray to him and we can say, Lord, you know show. Lord, you know, show. This is an active trusting in the sovereignty of God. Every single moment of their waiting, true waiting, true patience, comes because they understand who God is. Patience is just another word for resting in the sovereignty of God. It really is. True patience, the kind of joyful kind, not the fretting kind. The kind of patience that says, you know what, I don't know the future but I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Why are you at peace? Lord, you know. That's why. You believe you have a father who loves you and cares for you and set his affection on you before the foundation of the world? You believe that a God who once he makes a promise, it's as good as done? You believe in a God who never once has failed his people? Then you can rest and you can wait. The second thing, though, is that waiting... And understanding the sovereignty of God does not mean that you will be passive. You will not be passive. The first thing to note, obviously, is that they're praying. They come together, a whole group of them. And that's an interesting fact in and of itself. Most of the time we think of this, this time of the church as sort of like this huddled, little, tiny, small room kind of people. They apparently had converts and disciples of Jesus that had means enough to have a huge room. Any of you have a meeting room at your home? 120 people? Right? Just pack 120 people in this meeting room. Some people think this might have been the room that the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal was served in just previously. We don't know for sure. But they come together, and them waiting, they don't just wait silently and passively. They begin to pray. And the phrase in verse 14, devoting themselves to prayer, those two words, devotion and prayer, sound very similar in Greek. So there would have been some like Dr. Susie kind of alliteration going on here. Here's what they're doing. They're devotionally devoted. That's what they're doing. They're prayerfully praying. They are they're committing themselves before God in an intentional, ongoing kind of way. 
Let me tell you one of the dangers of the Christian life, one of the reasons that we are impoverished in a million different ways is because we play at praying. We play at it. We fit it in wherever we can find it. We utter things under our breath when we get a chance. But I really wonder, I say, God, pour out your spirit so that when someone came and peeked in on us, looking on us, what are these people like? Oh, they're devoted to praying. You ever met someone who's devoted to something? What does it take for you to say to someone, oh, they're very devoted? What does it take? Wear the jersey every day? Recite the statistics from 10 years ago? Go to the games? Sell an organ for the Super Bowl tickets? What what does it take, really? they're, they're, They're not just a fan. I tell people growing up, I grew up right on the Minnesota border. My entire family are huge Vikings fans. Massive Vikings fans. I was kind of a, a kid. I liked front runners when I was a kid, and I wanted to be a free agent. I declared myself when I was 12 a sports free agent, and I could just choose whoever I wanted to like. So I tell people all the time, yeah, I'm not really a Vikings fan. I'm a Vikings well-wisher. <laughs> I wish them well, right? Go on, go on your way, unlike the Yankees, so I'm a decidedly not a well-wisher, right? I'm the, the opposite of well. Anyway, the point is, devoted to prayer. Not just like, Oh, yeah, prayer. Yeah, prayer. I I like praying. I like praying when I do that. I don't have anything against people praying. Let me just tell you. Let me just get this out there. I don't know where you're at. I don't mind me some praying, right? I don't mind it. No, 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 no. Devoted. They devoted themselves to prayer. I have no idea what that looks like. The moment I start, like, putting that down into life, like, here's what it's going to look like, everyone. 5.30, if you're not there, you're not devoted. That is, that reeks instantly of legalism. I don't know what it means, but I would love for us all together, over the next number of months, to say to ourselves, like, devoted to prayer. What does that mean? Lord, you know. Lord, you know. Lord, you know what it means to be devoted to prayer. They're not passive. My guess is that their prayers weren't even very good. They're probably prayers like, God, we're confused. We're waiting, we're impatient, we're fearful, we don't know what to do, we're hurt, they're grieving, but they are praying. Next, apparently they're teaching and they're learning together at some degree. My guess is this is not the only time that someone stood up and talked about the scripture, right? This is a number, this is hours and hours and hours and hours of them waiting, right? And I doubt that this is the only time that Peter stands up to speak. It's recorded because of its significance. But the point is, is they're devoting themselves to the Word of God. They're learning together. Here's what they're doing. They're letting sovereignty, what they know of God, frame the suffering that they've just come through. This is a big question for you. When you face calamity in your life, when you face chaos and confusion, who speaks into your suffering? Who frames it for you? Who puts it in perspective? It's a question. Do you let your, own, do you let your feelings and your experience frame the suffering in your life? This sure feels bad. I don't know. I think, I, think they, I think they really meant it. I think they just want to destroy me and my family. I don't think there's any hope. It's always going to be like this. Old so-and-so told me that he had this, he had this happen and it never gets better. What are the disciples doing? The disciples have just come through treachery. I'm sure that Judas was a bro. It's not like Jesus was the only one who was hurt. No one else was happy about the situation. This is a guy who I'm sure they loved and knew well. Have you ever had someone be so hurtful and so treacherous, not to you personally, but because your connection to them, it just broke you, it just gutted you? 
you hurt for the other person like it was you? This was probably Judas. Judas was the money keeper. He was the guy. He was a guy who was with them. He hung out with them. He was not on the outside. He was not peripheral. He was a disciple of Jesus. And so not only are they letting the word of God speak into their suffering, but specifically concerning Judas. And what they find is a great mystery. And here's the mystery of Judas for us. What they find in Scripture is that God can sovereignly act in such a way that the sins, the unthinkable sins of a person can go and run parallel right alongside the eternal plan of redemption. The sins of Judas, the very real treachery, the complete undermining of the only innocent human being who ever walked the face of the earth, the kind of greed in his heart, the treason in his heart, all of those sins, somehow God used them. Somehow God knew of them. Jesus was not backstabbed in a shocking kind of a way, in a turn of events with Judas, right? In fact, Jesus has these really awkward dinner moments, right, at the Lord's Supper, where he's like taking the bread and he, one of you will betray me, right? You can imagine Jesus just being really like, what a tough, what a strong what a strong moment for Jesus. I look Judas straight in the eyes. One of you will betray me. Dips the bread. This is not a moment of complete shock to God. Judas is not acting outside of, despite his sin, despite the suffering that comes, Judas is not acting outside of the constraints of what God has ordained. Judas somehow fits into the picture and God is able to, in this moment, use even sin and work it for the greatest good that the world has ever known. This is an amazing fact. They are allowing the word of God to frame the suffering that they've just seen. They're allowing God to speak into it. Jesus is not attempting to run away from the guards and get away and finally set up his little kingdom and then he gets stabbed in the back and turns like, et tu brute. It's not et tu, Jute. It's not, it's not Judas. What have you done? It was active. In the midst of their waiting, they looked back over the course of their life and they let their situation be framed by the word of God. This is active learning and leadership from Peter. And then finally, the last thing that they're doing is they're leading. They're leading. They are encouraged. They're encouraged to consider leadership. God is going to reign. This book is about Jesus, alive and well, and reigning through his spirit in the church. The Gospels frame for us what Jesus began to do and teach. Acts shows us what Jesus continues to do and teach from heaven. And yet, despite the fact that it's Jesus doing it, we begin to get this focus on leaders. For the rest of the book, we're going to see leadership popping up everywhere. Why, when the disciples are mentioned, does Peter's name come forward? Why is Peter always the one that's standing up? He's standing up right here and framing Judas. In the next chapter, he's going to stand up and proclaim the gospel. He's going to teach everyone about repentance and what the kingdom is like, right? Why always the apostles? Why are they speaking and arguing for the Jerusalem council in Acts 15? And why is Paul's conversion such a big deal and his idea of apostleship? Why, 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 why? Because leadership is going to matter in this book. Did you note how right away in verse 13, they entered Jerusalem? When they had entered, they went to the upper room, and Luke takes very great care to outline the names of the, of the disciples. It's the exact same list. We're not going to go there. 
but it's the exact same list in Luke chapter 6. If you have time later, you can look at Luke chapter 6, and it mentions that Jesus, Jesus' influence was not tied to just the 12, right? It says there's at least 120. It's at least 120. But it says, it tells us in Luke 6, that he, he specified these 12 and set them apart. And I think the disciples probably understood that there was some continuity with the Old Testament. God's love and care for his people did not begin at Pentecost. It's not like he just decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start loving a covenant people. That's what I'm going to do. It goes all the way back to Genesis 12. And the disciples probably thought, okay, there's 12 of us. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There's some continuity going on here. Not perfect continuity. There's some promises that are going to be they're going to be left intact for ethnic Israel, of course, and Paul unfolds some of that in Romans 9 through 11. But there's some continuity, that this is not a mistake. Jesus didn't pick 12 guys because he had a 12-passenger van, and that's all the seats he had, right? I was a youth pastor for a while, and I drove one of those big vans, right? So that, that idea just tickled me this week, just made me, just made me laugh. Like, it was the Econoline van, that's why. We finally understand why Jesus picked 12, right? Now, the disciples thought there's some significance here. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus pulls them from the rest of the disciples and says, I'm going to appoint these as apostles. So now they're looking around, and they're in the upper room, and they're praying, and they're reading the scripture, and they're saying, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Let me count again. Like 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. I keep getting 11. And they're thinking, we need to replace leadership here. And so, this focus on the leaders of the early church begins to take shape. The disciples have not been forgotten. We do not believe in any measure whatsoever that you need a special mediator between you and God. There is no special leadership position that bestows grace on you in a way that God cannot specifically by His Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. We are a priesthood of all believers. But that does not mean that God does not have a specific role for gifted leaders in the early church. And we begin to see a focus on them right here at the end of Acts chapter 1. So what do they do? They take two guys and they put them forward. And they give us some criteria for what an apostle must be. They said, yeah, you guys remember that moment when the, the sky opened and God spoke and a dove came down? The person probably should have been with Jesus from that point, all the way up to witness everything. Remember last week, what did we say? Why was witness so important? Because Christianity is founded on a historical record. And they were cognizant of that. We need to have somebody who witnessed all these things. So in a show of trust in God's sovereignty, they put forth two, right? They put forth Matthias, who ends up getting counted, and then this other guy who has more names than Diddy. <laughs> did you notice that? This guy, Joseph, called Bersabbas. He's also called Justice. He's a nickname machine, apparently. This guy gets put forward. Maybe that's why he wasn't picked. Anyway, he gets put forward, right? And they do this thing that sounds interesting. They pray, and then they cast lots. And this seems like some people have surmised, like, what a mistake. Like, it must have got really boring up there. They're, like, playing roulette or something. Like, gamble on the leadership and what's happening here. The, the act of casting lots was a... Pat was patterned after an Old Testament process that was very commonplace. Commonplace, and it trusted in the sovereignty of God. Essentially this, that God is in control even over the falling of lots. There's times even when God himself, in the book of Numbers, commands them to make decisions on, in that way. He comes to leadership and he says, you have to divide up the land, here's what you're going to do, cast lots. 
And they trusted that God could work even in the midst of that. So it seems a little bit odd to us. The elders of Four Oaks did not say, who's going to pastor Midtown? <laughs> like, get a dartboard, start throwing, right? That, that was not the way that it happened. Did that happen like that? No, it didn't happen like that. I just I was maybe speaking out of turn. They didn't do that, right? They didn't do that, so it seems odd to us. But this is another show that they believed that God was sovereign down to the details of the casting of lots. And they cared about the role that these leaders would have in the church. They were in some measure showing a continuity with Israel. They were in some measure uniquely equipped to witness to the person, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then we know, starting right away in the next chapter, the church was going to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Their teaching, their voice, would come to shape the church in significant ways. And that's why they are so adamant about replacing Judas. Next week, when we come back, um, there's a minor little detail in the next chapter. What is it here? Oh, the Holy Spirit comes. <laughs> so, um, so we're going to get there. And I believe that it's a fitting and it's a good thing for us, like the disciples, to consider what it means to wait. The foundation of God's sovereignty and His care and His plan is vital for them, especially when the confusion and craziness comes in the next chapter. They go from 120 people who don't know what they're doing to 3,120 people or whatever and don't know what they're doing. But the disciples have had a practice of sitting and waiting on the promise. We're not completely unlike them. All of us are in the midst of unfulfilled promises. We know for a fact Jesus says that one day he's going to drink from the vine again when he makes all things new. And the question for us, in some measure, we have the Spirit of God in his fullness. But we do not see the glory of Jesus Christ covering the earth like we know that it will one day. And our faithfulness, our ability to wait in this tension of sin and disease and destruction and death while we wait has a lot to do with what we believe about who God is and how he functions. Let's pray that he helps us to have patience.